Hey, Leading Learning listener, if you represent a membership organization looking for ways to expand your online course catalog rapidly with high quality content, we have good news. At leadinglearning.com AMA, you can find out how to make online training from the American Management Association available to your learners. Through a partnership between AMA and Tagoras, the parent company of Leading Learning, you can give your learners access to more than 70 e-learning modules covering essential business topics ranging from leading and innovating, to managing projects effectively, to working in hybrid teams. For details on how to grow your catalog with courses from a true global leader in management training, visit leadinglearning.com AMA. If you're a leader, or an aspiring leader in the business of lifelong learning, you're in the right place. I'm Salisa Steele. And I'm Jeff Cobb, and this is the Leading Learning Podcast. Hello, and welcome to episode 66 of the Leading Learning Podcast. This time around, we're going to be talking with Rohit Bhargava, best-selling author of Non-Obvious, How to Think Different, curate ideas, and predict the future. But before we get to that interview, we have a couple of other important items we want to cover. The first is that we want to be sure to thank your membership, our sponsor for the first quarter of our podcast episodes in 2017. Your membership's award-winning learning management system, Crowd Wisdom, provides organizations with the means to manage all of their educational content formats in one central location and also provides tools to create and deliver assessments, evaluations, and learning communities. You can find out more about your membership at yourmembership.com. As we noted in the last episode, your membership is also the executive sponsor of Learning Technology Design, our annual event specifically for professionals in the business of continuing education and professional development. We launched LTD as a very successful face-to-face event in 2016, but we've decided this time around that we want to try it out as a virtual event. So LTD 2017 will be a completely web-based event, but the goal remains the same, and that is to help attendees find new and better ways to engage learners and create lasting impact through the effective use of technology. The event will take place March 1st through 3rd, and you can get all the details at ltd.leadinglearning.com. You can also get our preferred pricing rate through the end of January, and up through Friday, January 20th, you can take an extra $50 off of the registration fee by using the special code PODCAST when you register. We've put together what we feel like is a really great program for the event, covering topics like micro-learning, social learning, and effective marketing of learning programs. So we hope you'll take some time to learn more about learning technology design and join us in March. Now, Jeff, you had the chance to catch up with someone who has spoken at one of our past events, and I was lucky enough to uh, get to speak with him and interview him for um, one of our early podcast episodes, one of the first 10. Um, What did you and Rohit have a chance to talk about? Yeah, so well, it's great catching up with Rohit in the first place. Like you mentioned, he's spoken for us in the past, uh, specifically at our uh, 2015 uh, Leading Learning Symposium, and he was really well received there. And um, recently, he's come out with a new edition of Non Obvious, which is uh, his book uh, that grew out of a, an earlier uh, report, and it, and it's focused on curating trends. So, you know, identifying uh, emerging trends out there. And um, uh, what he talks about is the accelerating present, identifying those trends in the accelerating present that we all need to be 
focused on, you know, as we're going about our lives and our business. So, so of course, you know, we dug into to some of those trends, highlighted a few of them specifically and, and, and talked about them in detail, but probably more importantly, and I mean, it's one of the reasons that, uh, we uh, were, were, were so attracted to Rohit in the first place is that we talked about uh, how he goes through the process of curating trends. And, uh, you know, curation is something of a, of a buzzword. Um, you know, it has been for, for quite a while now, but uh, Rohit's somebody who, I mean, truly has a disciplined process around it. He explains that process, you know, so if you're interested in becoming an effective curator, whether that means of trends or, or any type of information, uh, this is just, this is just great, you know, insight to have. So we talked about his process. Um, we focused, you know, quite a bit on the role of curiosity in that process as well, and how that kind of, you know, drives the uh, the, the whole um, approach to curation that he has, and just how important curiosity is in general for learning. So, you know, as expected, uh, great conversation, very enlightening. I think uh, plenty of uh, uh, food for thought and actionable insights there for listeners. Well, great. Let's go take a listen to what you and Rohit Bargava have to say. Hey there, this is Jeff Cobb, and I'm very pleased to be joined by best-selling author and trend curator par excellence, Rohit Bhargava. Rohit was on the podcast in 2015, and he's been soldiering on ever since to curate trends and help both individuals and organizations become more influential. So Rohit, welcome back to the Leading Learning Podcast. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm, I'm really excited to talk with you again today. And um, I, I know, though, that not everyone has had the pleasure of hearing that previous episode that will definitely link back to that, but they, they may not be fully familiar with who you are and what you do. So maybe if you could just give us a quick rundown on that. Who are you and what do you do? <laughs> sure. Yeah. So I spend all my time right now helping people to capture better ideas and then make them more useful for themselves. And the lens that I put on that is trends and predicting the future. And so I teach leaders and organizations how to see around the corner and predict the future. And I know that sounds like a big, bold uh, unreasonable claim in many ways. I mean, how can you really predict the future? Uh, but really what I'm trying to teach people is how do you see the patterns in what's happening today and then project forward what that means for your business. And so that's my main focus. And my background is really from the marketing, branding, and storytelling side. So I spent uh, over a decade leading brand storytelling and messaging at uh, big agencies. I used to work at Leo Burnett and Ogilvy before branching out on my own. And I've written five books now, uh, all about kind of branding, trends, various different topics. Uh, and I spend kind of my time talking now and uh, training and doing workshops and just highly interactive stuff. So I, uh, I really enjoy it. I enjoy dealing with uh, with people. And uh, that's kind of me. Well, and, you know, I've had the pleasure of hearing you talk about it. You, you know, you came and keynoted at our um, Leading Learning Symposium in 2015, which was fantastic. And I mean, one of the things I appreciated both about your speaking and about your writing is, you know, you are predicting the future, as you say, but you're not one of those people who's talking about, you know, man and, and machine melding by 2030. Um, you're much more sort of down to earth and, and practical in your predictions. And in fact, you know, when you talk about a trend, you talk about that being a curated observation of the accelerating present. Can you, can you talk a little bit more about that concept of the accelerating present and, and how you look to that for the trends that you're identifying? 
Yeah, the present is very, very important to me because I could, like you say, be like many other futurists and try and project forward what's happening today and say, this is what's going to happen by 2050. And we're going to all have implantable chips in our brains and be able to automatically translate from any language through earpieces and whatever else might happen, right? But it's not that useful to know that today because even if that's going to happen by 2050, how does that change the way that you run your business or the way that you uh, project your career forward uh, right now? And so I do probably what the as an author is the dumbest thing I could possibly do, which is I rewrite 35% of my book every year. And the reason I do that is because I publish 15 brand new trends every year when the book comes out. And those trends are based on the upcoming year. But instead of just saying, okay, here are the new trends, now the old ones are irrelevant or old, I look backwards and say, well, here are some of the previous trend predictions and how they fared and whether they're still even more valuable today. And what I usually tell people when they say, oh, well, should I just read the new ones and not look at the old ones, is I say the new ones are the most non-obvious because they're the ones that Mm. most people aren't talking about yet. But if I've done my job correctly, then trends that I've predicted in 2013, for example, if you look at them now four years later, they should seem perfectly obvious because they've accelerated to a point where they've totally become mainstream and everybody's already kind of known them. So uh, really what I'm trying to do is be transparent, talk about what I've gotten right when I've gotten it right, and then show what I maybe didn't get right when I didn't get it right. And, and I love that you do revisit uh, trends and will sometimes reframe them just a little bit. Uh, we, we find that we end up doing the same thing just in the, the predictions we make about the, you know, the, the niche that, uh, that we operate in and the fact that you, you grade them as well. I mean, obviously, you're, I mean, you're, you're spending a lot of time kind of looking at things and rearranging and making connections. And you, know, you, you characterize curation as really being you know, the, the essential part of, of what you do. Could, could you talk a little bit about that, that term curation and what it means to you and, and then also what the essential parts of you know, your curation process are? Yeah, and I, I fully recognize that uh, curation is a total buzzword right now. Mm. And um, and when we think about curation, I mean, the heritage of it, most of us would probably associate curation with museums, right? I mean, museums have curators, and the role of a curator is really to decide what to show as much as it is to decide what not to show. I mean, any museum has more artifacts in their collection than they ever put on display. And the curator is the one who says – these are the pieces that are going to tell a story in this particular collection, and therefore that's what we're going to show, and this is the story we're going to tell. And that's really the same approach I take to gathering ideas. I spend a lot of time gathering ideas throughout the year through many, many different sources. And then I start to put the pieces together and say, well, this is what it means, this is what it leads up to, and that's the way that I figure out what these trends are. And so I am generally not a fan of this term trend spotting that we Mm. typically use. I don't think trend spot is something that exists. I don't think that you can go out into the world and look at something and be like, oh, there it is. That's the trend, (laughs) right? I think idea spotting is awesome. I love idea spotting because you can spot ideas everywhere. Ideas are all around us. But in order to make a trend, I mean, it's sort of like the ideas are the flour and the sugar and the eggs, but the trend is the cake that you make out of all of this stuff. And that's what we have to get more disciplined about doing instead of saying, oh, you know, 3D printing exists. So that's a trend. No, it's not. That's something that exists. What's the trend around it is maybe the maker's movement or people wanting to make their own stuff or simplicity or you know um, less complicated ways of producing things. I mean, those are all things that could be trends. But 3D printing itself is not a trend. That's just a technology that exists. Right, right. And so, I mean, you've been at this for 
quite a while at this point. I mean, you know, well before you actually published Non-Obvious, the book, you were doing the Trends Report. Um, so you've been curating for some time. I mean, has anything, you know, fundamental changed about your process over the years or, or, or maybe even since the, the last book? Yeah, I mean, one, well, yes, <laughs> for both. Um, okay. The first thing that changed was, uh, the first report I did was in 2011. So it's been seven years now. And the first time I did this, you're right, it was just digital. Um, it was mainly done through a visual PowerPoint. Um, there wasn't really a book behind the methodology. The methodology was just kind of something I was building. Mm. But the trend report was a standalone thing. And in the first two years, it was just focused on marketing and not broader than that. And now, actually, the trend report has five different categories, and marketing is just one of the categories. And the other categories are consumer and culture, uh, so consumer behavior and culture. There's a category for um, media and education. Uh, there's a category for technology and design. And then there's one for economics and entrepreneurship. And there's three trends in each category. And so really what I've done is I've sort of broadened the focus out and tried to make this more of a description of trends that are happening in business and in b customer behavior mm -hmm. and not put the lens of marketing or put the lens of industry on it. Because a lot of times when we read trends, it's you know, here are the financial services trends and here are the healthcare trends. And, and I very much focus on having multiple examples from many different disciplines in each trend. Because when I go in and I do uh, a learning session or a workshop or a keynote, one of the big things I talk about is if you're going to really innovate, you have to look outside of your industry. You can't just look at what people are doing in healthcare and say, okay, we're going to be innovative in healthcare by copying what people are already doing in our industry. You have to look outwards. Right, right. And and I love, I mean, you know, what you do is broad enough that um, the, the ideas can be applied across, you know, a range of disciplines and industries. I mean, I read you and of course my mind is going directly to, okay, the education business, the learning business. And I do want to talk about how some of the trends apply there, but it's great that they can apply to, you know, to that business, but then they're going to apply to just about, you know, they apply across the board. They've got that kind of um, uh, breadth and, and depth to them. Now, I mean, one one thing I've noticed is that uh, curiosity, um, you know, is central to, to to what you're doing. I mean, you highlight it as one of the five habits uh, of curation, and um, you know, as as I was reading the, the new book, that just kept coming back to to mind more and more because I mean, curiosity is obviously so important to learning in general, and, and what you're engaged in there is really a, a learning process. But it made me wonder. I mean, we're you know we're also kind of distracted in, in our lives now. And, and I have to wonder, you know, is, is meaningful curiosity kind of in danger? Is that, is that harming people when it comes to their ability to see trends? And I, I'd love your perspective on that. And, and if there's more we could all be doing to cultivate a, a truly productive sort of curiosity. Yeah, it's it's interesting that you frame the question that way because it, I think it is in danger, uh, curiosity. And the reason why I think it's in danger is because there's a lot of algorithmic pressure on us mm. to just read the things that we agree with or the media that we're used to consuming or that our friends who think like us also consume. Right. And so you really have to be intentional about consuming what I call brainful media as opposed to brainless media because you can just sit there and watch reality shows and watch people behaving badly and seeing people doing stupid things and you know at the end of the day psychologically yeah it makes me feel good about myself because I'm not 
not maladjusted like those people and I'm not stupid <laughs> like those people, or at least I think I'm not, right? So watching that stuff, uh, like you can get stuck in that trap and just feel good about yourself. And we all want to feel good about ourselves, right? Uh, but the problem is it doesn't lead us anywhere. It's just brainless. Mm-hmm. And so there's brain full media. There's things that cause you to start thinking about the world. And we have to be intentional about seeing that stuff. We have to be intentional about breaking out. So yeah, being curious, of course, that's something that we all want to do. We all want to have more curiosity, but how do we do it, right? So there's a couple of, of uh, uh, tips that I give to people when it comes to training yourself to be more curious. And one of the first ones is I travel all the time. And one of my favorite habits is that I pick up magazines from the airport bookstore that are not targeted towards me. Hmm. And the reason I do that is because I want to break out of my own world. And so in the last couple of months, I've picked up magazines targeted at Hispanic moms. I've picked up a magazine for people who love tattoos. Uh, I picked up magazines for motorcycling, for sailing, for modern farming. I mean, none of these things are things that I do uh, or have really that much interest in. But when I pick up a magazine that's targeted to someone else and I start flipping through it, not only do I see the stories and the language that's used, but I also see the ads. Right. And seeing the ads is really powerful because you start to see how marketers are communicating to that segment, what language they're using, what visuals they're using, what imagery they're using, what products are being positioned to that audience. And that is a great way of starting to learn about someone other than yourself and being curious about the world outside of your own blinders and being conscious that we all have those blinders and that we can start to get outside of it. So buy magazines not targeted towards you. And it's, it's an incredibly easy thing to do, I guess, when you're in an airport too. I mean, you can, you know, walk in and, and peruse the shells and pull some things down and, and look at them. Um, and I think that's a suggestion you actually even, even gave when you, when you uh, talked at the leading learning symposium that I know resonated with a lot of people. Yeah, it's amazing because anytime I share it, then I start getting emails back from people after an event. And they're like, hey, look at the magazine I picked up. And the, the more random they are, the more uh, I feel good about, <laughs> about that. Yeah. Simple tip, but, uh, but high impact. Um, well, you know, one thing I'd love to do while, while I've got you on the line here is, you know, look at some of the specific trends that, that you identify in this uh, most recent uh, version of non-obvious. And, uh, you know, as you said, you've got 15 in there. Where we, you know, can't, can't go through every one of them, but I thought maybe we could do kind of a lightning round around uh, at least a, a few of them um, that, that jumped out to me and I thought were particularly relevant to uh, the, the audience that's likely to be uh, listening. Um, and so, and, and I, and when I look back at them too, I, I felt like, you know, two of them sort of felt like threats, to be honest, and one of them felt like an opportunity. Um, so I'm going to start with one that, uh, that feels a little bit like a, a threat, at least for the, the, the audience that, um, that we've probably got listening today. And that's what you characterize as passive loyalty. Um, and I'll, I'll read the description. It says, you know, as switching from brand to brand becomes easier and technology empowers consumers, a new understanding of loyalty challenges brands to get smarter about earning true loyalty. And, and I raise that as a potential um, threat because, you know, we've got a lot of membership organizations listening who, who wrestle with that loyalty question, you know, and wrestle with, you know, do we have too many what would be characterized as checkbook members? You know, they're just signing the check every year, but they're not really committed. They're not really loyal. And there's this, you know, uh, idea that's been in the association uh, sector for quite a while that, um, you know, remaining relevant is being more and is getting more and more challenging. So can you talk a little bit about passive loyalty and, and also with an eye towards, you know, that membership organizations and how that might apply there? Yeah, I think the first thing that's 
is so important when it comes to passive loyalty is understanding that there's a difference between passive and active loyalty, even though both of those individuals in a membership organization or otherwise may be classified as quote unquote loyal, Mm. right? Because the easy thing to do is say, okay, this person's been paying their dues for five years. Uh, They're loyal, right? I mean, as based on monetary metrics, they've been a member for five years, they're loyal. Right. But they may be passively loyal. And unless you can find a good way of segmenting those people out into passively versus actively loyal, you can't really do anything to move somebody from passively to actively. So it is a threat, but it's a threat because the way we think about loyalty is not nuanced in that way. We either think somebody's loyal because they're a member or they're not because they're not a member or because their membership lapsed. Mm -hmm. And we have to get smarter than that. And so that's the first step, knowing that there's a difference. The second piece is, okay, if there is a difference, what do our actively loyal people in our organization do more often? Do they interact more often? Do they show up to more events? Do they tend to refer other people? What's the behavior of an actively loyal member versus someone who's not actively loyal? And then you can start to say, okay, well, now that we know what behaviors actively loyal people do versus the ones who are passively loyal, how do we move people along that path? How do we get them to do more of that actively loyal behavior? And you see echoes of this in many different companies. So for example, when you think about loyalty, a lot of times what companies think of is loyalty programs. Mm -hmm. So they have their loyalty programs and people earn points. And they have a lot of research behind this to say, okay, somebody who's a member of the loyalty program, we want to think about them as loyal, but they're on a spectrum. And what the loyal members do much more often is they take their rewards and they actually redeem them for something, which is why a lot of times what you'll see in terms of messaging for you, if you're a member of like a, you know, let's say Delta Sky Miles or something like that, and you don't have enough miles to redeem any flights, what will they do? They'll send you those little things saying, hey, you could get these magazines as a subscription for, you know, 2,000 miles each or whatever. And the reason they're trying to do that is they want you to use those miles so you see the value of them so that you remain in some way loyal and you say, oh, I got something for flying on Delta, even though I didn't get a free flight because I didn't have enough points. Right, right. So getting people to cash in on what they're earning is one way of moving them along that spectrum, right? There's other ways as well, and we've done kind of entire strategy sessions around how do we do that, right? Because it's a big challenge. But the first step is we've got to understand who's passively loyal and who's actively loyal. Right, right, okay. And so then understanding then what what defines those loyal people and trying to, the truly loyal and trying to move the passively loyal in that direction to, uh, you know, use that as a model to work towards, it sounds like. Yeah, exactly right. And I, and I do think, I mean, there's a, the easy thing to think with uh, with this one, and I totally recognize it, is that this is a pretty pessimistic view of loyalty, right? That right. like, <laughs> that, hey, if these people aren't loyal, they're going to switch tomorrow, right? But real brand loyalty or real membership loyalty does exist. It's just we have to get better at doing the things that it takes to foster it on a human level. And so I think there's an element of empowering here along with the fear of, oh man, people are going to leave tomorrow. I better get around this. Yeah, definitely. So, so that would be, you know, potentially in the, in the threat category. Um, but, uh, to switch back and be a little more, you know, uh, positive, um, with this next one, you identify this trend, uh, that, that you call a uh, deep diving. Um, and I'll uh, read again what you say about that or the little snippet on it, which is 
While our shrinking attention span leads people to consume information more selectively, many people prefer to dive deeply into experiences that truly capture their interest. And and for me, this sounds like a, a, a real potential opportunity for any organization that's in the education business to realize that this is there and and to present those deep dive opportunities. What's what's your perspective on that? This was one of those trends that was initially surprising to me when I started uncovering it. And then as I dug deeper and spoke to experts and started to do more research and find more stories, it just it started to kind of really crystallize in my head this idea that we are not moving into a world where humans – the easy thing that we sometimes think is we're moving into a world where nobody can concentrate on anything for any period of time. And we're so distracted and it's even worse if we're kind of younger in age and even worse for millennials and they're often tagged with being kind of the the poster uh, children of this idea of an inability to focus on anything because they just move too quickly. But actually what's happening is we are becoming smarter at filtering super quickly. But sometimes what that's leading us towards is being able to filter so quickly that we find things that we do want to spend time with and we choose to spend a longer period of time because we filtered through. So for example, Wired Magazine has a section of their website called wired.com slash long reads. And it is their longest journalism articles from the past five years. So stuff that's not even that current, right? Like the story of the Mexican uh, teacher who changed the way that math was taught in Mexico, which is like from three years ago. Fascinating story, right? Of a guy who just managed to get these amazing test scores with his students because he changed the way that math was being taught in public schools in Mexico. So great educational story sort of evergreen, even though it's three years old, and it's in Wired's long read section. So now, if you want to spend some time really digging into a topic that I think this one in particular would be highly relevant for your audience, right? People can do that, and they'll spend all of this time reading that article, and they'll choose to do it in the moment when they have the time. And that's really what deep diving is about. It's we choose to spend the most time with the things that engage us deeply, and if it doesn't engage us deeply, we just read the headline quickly and we're done. Uh, But there is both of those styles of media, and they both exist. And I think that we forget about the deep diving because we're so focused on the quick switching and the headlines and the BuzzFeed type of stuff. Right, right. Everybody's really focused on that. That's funny. I I did not even know about that uh, section of Wired. I'm a a Wired subscriber, so I'm going to have to go (laughs) check that out now. Um, But uh, but we've recommended to organizations that, you know, I mean, so many organizations are uh, focused on having, you know, large events with something for everybody, you know, all sorts of different types of content. And and it can be overwhelming, um, that, you know, now might be a good time for smaller, much more focused deep dive events where you really are just going, you know, very deep on a, on a very specific, potentially niche area of your uh, business or or industry. And we, we think of that as boutique learning, which seems to fit in well, um, with this. It does. Yeah. So the, the the third one I want to ask you about, um, and this is kind of leaning back a little bit to the, the threat side, but this is more of a sort of a, a universal threat or maybe a universal challenge, I guess, is this concept of uh, self-aware data, you know, which you identify as a trend. And I'll once again read, um, you say, rather than relying on human analysis, the combination of artificial at- intelligence and better sensors is allowing data to predictively organize itself, identify insights, and often create its own actionable conclusions with little or no 
human intervention. And I said earlier in the podcast that you're not the sort of, you know, machines and humans melding in 2030 sort of predictor. But on the other hand, this, this is the probably the trend you identify that feels closest to the, you know, artificial intelligence and the internet of things will eat the world type thing. Um, it's, tell us a little bit more about your perspective on, on self-aware data and, and maybe from the perspective, you know, to the extent that you've thought about this of, you know, what that means for human beings, you know, what and how we need to learn if, if, if machines are going to be doing all of this. I know that anytime you put self-aware next to anything related to the future, it's pretty, (laughs) it's pretty concerning. Uh, right. And because we, we hear about self-awareness when it comes to technology, and it's usually attached to some sort of science fiction uh, dystopian world where the computers are, are overlords and mm-hmm. we're just uh, we're subservient to them, right? But I think that the reason why I put this trend in and why I used it as a way of describing the now, because you know, as you know by now, like I don't really focus on stuff that's going to happen 10 or 15 years from now, although this one will clearly accelerate right. to that point. The reason why I put it as now was because there's more and more situations where we are relying on the data to organize and come up with solutions itself. And if you think about, for example, in the world of financial services, the rise of robo-advisors and the idea that a computer can track algorithms and stock prices and fluctuations in stock way faster than any human ever could. And if we set up the right kinds of rules, they can analyze that data and say, this is where things might be headed and this is where things are right now. And based on that, here's the investments we want to make. But we need the computer to be able to take the next step in that case because humans can't act on that information fast enough in that market before stuff switches. So the computer has to be able to analyze that based on some rules and make the decisions itself based on what we've set it up to do. Mm. And that's one example in one space. There's other examples in farming where algorithms are being used to track weather data and make decisions about what gets how much water and how frequently that happens. Uh, in, in the industry of uh, manufacturing, this idea of uh, industry 4.0 and manufacturing robots who are also kind of making those decisions on a, on a factory floor, these are all examples of what this data is, is doing for us. And it's quick calculations. It's usually in a very mathematical or engineering-oriented environment. And so to your question about, like, what does that do for our job prospects, mm-hmm. uh, I think that there's a well, I know that there's a pretty good body of research right now talking about the jobs of the future being those that are uniquely human, right. things that need people and people skills in order to do. It's very easy to agree with the idea that if you're going to work on a factory floor assembling stuff, you don't really need people skills for that. A robot is always going to be better at a job like that. And those are the first jobs that are going to start to go to robotics and go to um, technology. And yes, that's a threat because there's an entire segment of the population where that's that's their livelihood and that's starting to go away. But that's not going to change anytime in the future. And so the challenge is how do we start to help people either retrain themselves or refocus themselves on the job roles that are uniquely human? Education is one of them. Uh, nursing and caring for people is one of them. Communications, obviously, is one of them. I mean, these are some categories. There's lots of other categories where we as individuals uh, have unique abilities that are very, very hard, at least today, for machines to reproduce. And that's where the jobs of the future are going to come from. 
Well, definitely food for thought for uh, for everybody who's looking out to the the future and and, and trying to figure out uh, you know what that means for for what we learn, what we do, what you know what human life looks like out in the future. But as you said, you know it applies very much to the to the present, um, uh, to what we're doing right now. Now, I should ask you. I've, I've just raised three trends, but uh, in all fairness, I should say you know what what. What uh, trend from the current edition do you happen to find, you know, most fascinating, most most compelling, and and why? I'm probably the. I mean, it's hard. Like it's like a parent. Like it's hard to choose your favorite kid, right? right? <laughs> and when my when my older son asks me, you know, sometimes kids ask and they're like, "Who do you like more?" And I tell him, <laughs> "I I like you three years longer because he's three years older than my younger one." And that's my answer, right? Very uh, diplomatic. I, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's a, you know, you can't choose. Um, but the thing I can tell you is which of the trends has been, uh, most popular for people when they go through, because I'm doing a lot of the, you know, interviews and speaking Mm -hmm. with a lot of people about them. And one that often stands out for people and that they very frequently ask about is a trend that I called fierce femininity. Uh, yeah. And, uh, fierce femininity was really a culture and consumer trend. And it was about this rising, uh, fierceness in how women are being portrayed in media and in culture. And if all you have to do is have a quick look at sort of recent films to see that. I mean, if you look at this new Star Wars film or Hunger Games or any of these films where the women are are not sitting in a tower waiting to be rescued. I mean, these are women who are kicking butt and saving the guy while they're doing it. Mm -hmm. And that's the kind of new model of what I think we're, we're seeing when it comes to this idea of femininity. And usually if you look at a traditional way of describing femininity, fierce is not the word that you would associate with that. Uh, and yet that is a, a really prevalent thing that's starting to happen, not just in the U S I mean, it's easy to think this is just a U.S. centric thing, but I was in China uh, recently and I was doing a lot of, uh, discussion around these trends because there's a translation of the book that's out and fierce femininity was a hugely popular one in China. Um, it was hugely popular in the Middle East when I was there as well. So like cultures where you maybe don't think that this is going to be as prevalent as it maybe is in the U.S. are also seeing huge potential uh, in this one. And so that has sort of surprised me but also given me hope, I think, because uh, this is a really, really powerful uh, shift that's happening in, in business. And I, uh, th- I think it's a good thing. Yeah, definitely. It's funny too. Uh, we were just rewatching the uh, the early Star Wars, um, you know, uh, the number four, which you know came out as number one in the in the theaters with our kids this weekend. And I was watching Carrie Fisher as, as uh, Princess Leia, and I had that concept of uh, fierce femininity in, in, in mind as uh, as I was watching it, having read your book, because I think she was ahead of her time in the way she portrayed that particular that character. She was, yeah, yeah. she was definitely. Well, to to start wrapping up. Um, you know, you identify these trends, and as you said earlier, uh, sort of a, a critique of the people who, you know, maybe go way out in the future, and, and it's hard to really do anything with it. Um, I mean, the types of things you're identifying, you know, people presumably can do something with, but but how do how do they go about doing that? I mean, how do you take trends and then actually, you know, make them applicable within your particular organization? So the first thing I should tell you is my philosophy when it comes to predicting trends and seeing around the corner is very much the same as if you've ever seen that Pixar film Ratatouille. Mm -hmm. And the whole idea behind that is there's this rat who learns how to cook and nobody thinks that a rat should be able to cook, but he has the passion and he has this belief that anybody can learn how to cook if they just apply themselves. Right. 
And I have the same belief when it comes to predicting the future. You don't have to be a trained scientist uh, or somebody who's studied futurism or any of those sorts of things. I think that each of us has the potential to start to do what I call intersection thinking, yeah. which is make the connections between stories that may not seem like they're uh, associated with one another. But if you apply the right lens and put the right process behind it, you start to see those connections. And it's really magical to see like people who initially come into this process and say, well, I don't know how to predict the future. I don't know how to do any of this stuff. But then you teach them how to curate their ideas and even something so simple like how to take notes properly. I mean, we never learned that in school. And if you yeah. ever have that moment where you remember reading the textbook and having your highlighter out and you highlight like every sentence. <laughs> and when you look back at the textbook, like you've highlighted everything, which is basically useless, right? right? Because you haven't really helped yourself learn anything. And so we don't get taught how to take notes. We don't get taught how to curate ideas. We don't get taught how to do any of this stuff. And then we get out into the business world and we're forced to try and come up with our own ideas and we can't. So we end up cutting and pasting stuff and not really being as innovative as we want to be. And I don't think that needs to be the way. I think we can learn to be more innovative. I think it takes the right process, but it's learnable, it's teachable. And that to me is what's really exciting because if we can lead ourselves towards a more non-obvious world instead of just surrounding ourselves with obvious things that everybody's talking about, uh, that's better for everybody. Definitely, definitely. Well, before we sign off um, from from this episode, uh, as you may remember from the last time you were on, we always like to ask uh, guests, you know, how they go about their their own lifelong learning, and and you've answered the question before, but uh, so maybe I'll rephrase it a little bit for you. Um, you know, if you got anything new in your bag of tricks as to how you go about learning and, and growing on a you know daily, weekly, yearly basis. I would say the the biggest thing I had to learn because we are often taught the exact opposite is that I should spend money and time getting better at the things that I'm already good at. Mm as opposed to trying to get good at the things that I do badly. So I could spend a lot of time and effort learning how to do accounting better <laughs> because I suck at it. <laughs> but it would be a terrible, terrible thing for my uh, life to have to sit through more stuff on that. It's much better for me to hire somebody who's really good at that. And instead, you know, one of the things I did in this past year was while I was teaching public speaking and storytelling to Georgetown students, I did a master's level two-day intensive course on becoming a better keynote speaker. And I mm. spent, you know, more than $10,000 to do that. And I brought that to my students and I said, look, I'm at a top university, Georgetown, teaching master's level students how to be better speakers. And at the exact same time, I'm spending money to train myself to be a better speaker. And that to me is the perfect example of how I would like to think about learning. Yes, I have curiosity. Yes, I read magazines and all sorts of stuff. But I spend money to get better at the things that I'm already good at. And I think that we don't get enough advice from people saying that we should do that. Very, very wise words in, indeed. I, I could not agree more. And it, it prompts me also to to give an unsolicited plug for you as a keynote speaker. Anybody listening who is looking for a very compelling keynote speaker for an upcoming event, Rohit is absolutely excellent. I will, I will say that uh, up front. So your, your learning is obviously paying off in, in spades. Well, as, as, we're, as we're finishing up here, can you let folks uh, know just you know, how they can find you, how they can contact you, particularly if they do want you to come and be a keynote speaker for them? 
Absolutely. Yeah. The easiest uh, thing is you go to my website, which is my full name. So rohitbargava.com. If it's specifically about speaking, just put slash speaking at the end of it. And from there, you'll see a list of topics that I speak about, a bunch of video, and we're adding a a whole bunch more video uh, in the next kind of week or two. So there's lots and lots of video, uh, which I know is super important. And uh, just a little look at me, like what it's like to, to kind of work with uh, with me and I will say there are a couple of titles on my business card but the one I'm most proud of is nice guy it says <laughs> nice guy on my business card and I try and live up to that so I'm not a diva I, I enjoy working with people and I try to uh, be accommodating as much as I can well, I will, I will vouch that you are indeed a nice guy, and you've been very nice to, to come on to the podcast again. So thanks so much, Rohit. It's uh, been a pleasure talking with you as always. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So that's it for our interview with Rohit Bargava. As we're exiting, we want to say thanks to your membership for being the sponsor of this episode of the Leading Learning Podcast. You can find out more about your membership at yourmembership.com. We also want to mention again that we have open registration for Learning Technology Design, our annual event specifically for professionals in the business of continuing education and professional development. You can get details and register at ltd.leadinglearning.com. If you do that before January 31st, you'll get our preferred rate, which is $100 off the full rate. And be sure to use the code podcast through January 20th to take an extra $50 off. To get show notes for this episode, just go to www.leadinglearning.com slash episode 66. While you're there, you'll also see the various options for subscribing to the podcast. And if you're not subscribed already and you're getting value out of the podcast, we would be truly grateful if you would hit that subscribe button. We would also be grateful if you would take just a minute to give us a rating on iTunes. You can do that by going to leadinglearning.com slash iTunes. We really appreciate it because it makes it much easier for others to find the podcast. Finally, consider telling others about the podcast. You can send out a tweet simply by going to leadinglearning.com slash share, or if tweeting isn't uh, your thing, you can take the text there and put it into any other social network of your preference, whether that's LinkedIn or Facebook or wherever it is that you hang out. Please spread the word. So thanks again, and we'll see you next time on the Leading Learning Podcast.